in this current chapter that you find yourself in, what mythic role are you playing? How do you show up and how are you operating in service to this greater world that we find ourselves in? The world has never been changing more rapidly, dislocating the ways we work, learn and live. On the Learning Future podcast, we discuss the knowledge, skills and dispositions we all need for our learning future, exploring insights with world-class educators, researchers, policymakers and leaders from across industries and across the world. Hi team and welcome to the Learning Future podcast. Today we're speaking with Dr. Jason Fox. Jason is a best-selling author, a leadership advisor and a wizard philosopher of ace repute. He really demonstrates forward thinking, um, particularly in his work with leaders all around the world. And how might we pioneer new and meaningful progress beyond the default modes that already exist? Uh, He's worked with many, many different companies from around the world, including Fortune 500 companies like Microsoft, HP, Cisco, Johnson & Johnson, Toyota, Honda, Salesforce, the list goes on. But he also is engaged with financial institutions, universities, telcos, government agencies, and a range of other forums, including intergovernmental spaces. Jason has lectured at three different universities on systems and behavior and is the best-selling author of two books, The Game Changer and How to Lead a Quest. Jason lives with an illustrator veterinarian in Melbourne, in fact, in an old chocolate factory, which sounds delightful, and has a cat called Pie, which seems very appropriate. And of course, we're not attempting to liberate the world from the delusion of progress. Jason enjoys partaking in extreme sports such as reading, sun avoidance, and coffee snobbering, snobbery, all of which, of course, are more pertinent now as uh, he joins us from stage four lockdown in Melbourne. So, Jason, a real delight to be able to speak with you today. Thank you so much. So it's, it's nice to be here. It's interesting hearing, hearing the bio, because um, uh, we're, all, we're all so much more, you know, every one of us and all the listeners, we're more complex than can be captured into any paragraph. And I hear the bio and I'm like, oh, yeah, I created that as an almost like a, a Trojan horse mechanism to sneak into enterprise land so that we can do our work. And there's this, it's kind of fun to step back, like, you know, the chats that we're having here is almost mm. step back and look at what roles we're showing up in and how we're playing almost through a poetic lens as we, we consider the systems that we're working within. And so that bio that you read, thank you. Um, super impressive. It's, it's kind <laughs> of, it's orientated towards like, Mm, you know, corporate leaders thinking, oh, yeah, let's get this person in. But um, it's not necessarily how I'd introduce myself at a barbecue. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, well, hopefully we get the opportunity to do that again, you know. After, yeah. I think we, we met great. briefly last year um, in the pre-COVID era. But I, I do, I, I'm really interested in this. Um, you know, Walt Whitman has a, a really powerful line, I think, and he says, I am large, I contain multitudes. And, yeah. and so this idea, and we've unpacked this across, you know, this podcast is, you know, that we, ha- we hold multiple identities. We need to, and particularly in an accelerating world where the jobs that we take are going to shift, yeah, you know, our entire business models as organizations, you know, which is, you know, a lot of your work, that's going to yeah. shift. And then how do we design, you know, for intrinsic motivation? How do we design kind of the different elements within the ecology of a school, an organization, a, a community, a, a society that actually, you know, take us towards what, you know, progress you know, a better definition of progress, i.e. maybe collective well-being or flourishing or thrivability as opposed to, yeah. well, let's just uh, try to save ourselves from, you know, economic collapse. <laughs> yeah. And how do we allow for the, the fluidity in the roles in which we play and the ability to um, 
I guess, tap into different aspects of ourselves to bring, bring our best in that flourishing, a thriving mindset. Because what seems to be the, the kind of the modern mindset is to, you know, to, to go yeah. pick your lane, you know, become a specialist, become known as a particular thing. And to, to, it's, it's almost this quite rigid, fixed, staid, you know, um, ossified approach to um, what could be much more yeah. vibrant and flourishing. Um, which is, you know, which is where you, a lot of the themes you talk about here with those complexity of things. I think that when we shift lenses to view things much through, more through a lens of complexity and t- instead of what tends to happen, which is where people look at things as though it's complicated. And so they think of it, they treat systems as though it's a machine and they try to find the bit that's yeah. wrong and fix it. And it's very reductive and linear and, and all of that. Instead, we want to be looking at relationships, connections, emergence, and how we can play as yeah. gardeners, I guess, or, you know, to cultivate um, for emergence. Such a wonderful metaphor. And I think, you know, our language does reveal our mental models often, right? So it's like, yes, you know, how yes, do we yeah. describe the change that we wish to see? Um, I, w- I want you to tap into this a bit more because, you know, I think we could talk about a about hundred different themes. Um, but what is the big question that you've been exploring? You know, and it might be recently, but it could just be across your work, you know, be it something around complexity or motivation or whatever the case might be? Uh, it's a question that I, I wrote about and had a leader quest. Um, and the question is, what makes for meaningful progress? Um, I wrote it at the time and I was thinking that, oh, here's a nice way to get folks to distinguish between meaningful progress and that which could be considered a delusion of progress. And I'd say that um, the vast majority of a lot of the work that we do in many modern organisations could be considered a delusion of progress. This is where it's, the, the kind of value generated from the effort put in is disproportionately low. This is a situation that where it's much more of a career advancement strategy to broadcast that you're doing the work than it is to actually do the work itself, where it's all sorts of shallow signaling, vanity metrics and all of that. Yeah. But the thing is, <laughs> this question of meaningful progress has plagued me, haunted me. This It continues to be this thing of, you know, once you, when you expand your consciousness to consider things beyond simply a particular business or beyond a particular system, when you start to get metasystemic, when you start to really consider, hang on, shit, what is, what is meaningful progress? I mean, who, who gets to decide, right? So then you've got to synthesize a variety of perspectives, got to have a sense of, hang on, what do we mean when we say meaningful? Mm. Um, meaningful to whom? Yeah. And, you know, and it's just, it's just this question that it's, it's, um, it's enlivening and just so, uh, yeah, it's, it's plagued me for several years and it doesn't seem <laughs> to be going away. I'm, I'm glad for us. Yeah. yeah. I'm interested in the, um, it's actually quite a philosophical starting point, uh, you know, and I think mm. right now, be it the great, lots of language, you know, the great disruption, the great reckoning, the great reset, the great pause, you know, there's, whatever it is, people are thinking it's great in some ways, it, that remains to be seen. <laughs> yes. But, you know, the idea is, you know, what is, what is meaning? What is meaningful? Like, mm. how do we find, what is the meaning of life? But then, of course, a lot of philosophers will say, well, it's not about that. It's about finding meaning in life. And so that, you know, it's a really interesting frame about purpose and how might we pay attention to the way that we build back um, or build forward and, and create more meaning by the way that we define what success is. And success is already a, a really difficult word. It's a funny Because term, of course people yeah, go, well, what yeah. success is, and you've talked about it, you know, it's like, yeah. you know, value signaling or purpose washing is another way that you can do it, of yeah. course, right? Yeah. Oh, like you're actually doing meaningful work. Well, is it meaningful? Like, where are we heading? What is our collective destination? Yeah. And I mean, 
there's issues with the word success and so and how finite it is and how fixed and predetermined. Yeah. Whereas all of this is is much more about tapping into a sensibility of emergence. Where I would, you know, from a this this isn't a good bumper sticker, you know, answer to any of this, but I would say that which uh, I mean, uh, Tyson Youngerport, the author of Sand Talk. Um, talks about the role of custodians. Mm. And this has been a recent thing on my radar that, that reimagines the role of humans from, from a species of which we can be very disappointed in ourselves, what we've wrought, um, to potentially seeing the role that we can play as custodians and, and that the role of meaningful progress might be um, cultivating the conditions that allow for the flourishing of higher orders of complexity. And that goes in the exact opposite direction to the artificial simplicity, the reduction, the dumbing down, the metrification, all of the yeah. things that modern society, the machine seems to gear us towards. And it and instead, you know, asks us to cultivate other sensibilities. But I, I th I'd say there's one lens here that, that helps because we're never going to arrive to a singular answer to the, these questions. Mm. And this is the lens of metamodernism. Have you heard no, of this? No, so tell us this, more about uh, that. Okay, metamodernism. If you think of modernism, modernism as a group of societal values, and I'm going to do a terrible job, I'm going to crudely, you know, distill, you know, something quite rich into, you know, succinct sure. form. Modern, modern values, um, belief in science and rationality and meritocracy and belief in the individual. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you've got to put yourself for, and, and you can think of how that plays out in a lot of decisions and the art that gets manifested. And then you have postmodern values and postmodern values happen to exist in pockets within cities or within pro pro progressive movements. And these postmodern values bring a lot of accurate critique to the modern mindset. They're like, hang on, is it meritocracy? Because it seems to be that the same white dudes always seem to get the jobs and promoted. And hey, okay, cool, science. Okay, belief in that. But look at the connections with the funding here and all that. And mm -hmm. now the, the, the critiques are accurate and apt and needed. The trouble is they don't often go anywhere. Yeah. And one of the troubles with the more progressive side of politics and things like that is we tend to cannibalise each other. Everyone tries to outleft each other and get more pro progressive and more, more, you know, apt and effective with their critique. Yeah. Metamodernism comes in almost as a synthesis betwixt these two, and I would like to ideally think it synthesises in some of the more pre-modern and Indigenous wisdoms as well and thinks, okay, it's kind of a both-end thing here. Mm. Um, yes, the critiques are right, but also there's some sort of things that have worked previously in the past. And we, if we can rekindle some modes with the sensibilities that we have from, um, you know, the, the recent critiques, if we can almost put forth a, a protosynthesis, uh, a protosynthesis is like everything that we know, all of our ex expertise and experience, but it's just a prototype model, but it might be something that can move us closer to future relevance, move us closer to a world more curious and kind then that's probably a good thing to play in. But so, so in that sense, metamodernism almost allows us to get away with doing things, but we do so with, a, you know, an enriched sensibility and the ability to be quite fluid in how we go about it. That's, I don't that's, know if that makes no, sense No, absolutely fantastic. Um, I hadn't, hadn't heard that explanation in that sense before. I mean, I have heard the, you know, the idea there is thesis and then there's, of course, antithesis and then there's yeah, synthesis yeah, that comes beyond that. Right? Yeah. So how do you go For sure. from kind of an either or to a both and or how do you become kind of post-dualist and kind totally. of you know, that effectively progress? And in some, some sense, some of the language and some of the models that we have, even the left-right spectrum, you know, in some senses doesn't enable us to move forward because we become grounded in, in old 
mental models that we, yep. we struggle That's to right. escape. And enmeshed with the identities around yep. it. And that becomes this spectacle pantomime, you know, where nothing actually changes, even though we are all heavily invested in the, in the furor of it. This kind of synthesis antithesis, um, what I love about it through the metamodern lens is you can think of it as um, the juxtaposition of sincerity and irony. Um, so modernism brings a lot of sincerity, but this is where you see, you know, motivational speakers on the circuit that have, let me tell you my truth. Okay. Here are the three things that you need to do. And, you know, they're so passionate about their thing, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but they can't, they don't have enough ironic distance to realize actually there's other perspectives, yeah, totally. but then you get a postmodern speaker in that comes in and all they're doing is pointing to the flaws and things, but not actually offering any of their own sincere perspectives. Yeah. So it's very clever, but people are left with, huh, that's great. I don't know what to do. But the ability to synthesize, like to not take yourself too seriously and yet still be able to smuggle in some sincerity cloaked in irony, it just, it's this like an alchemy there that just opens mm. up new pathways for mm. us. Um, and so I think from an educator's perspective, from a learning perspective, this synthesis, the ability to dance in a kind of an oscillatory or a fluid manner through some of these more, uh, the wicked challenges in, in front of us is a disposition I think is going to be useful. That's fantastic. I'd love it. I'd love to go there with this, it, you know, in terms of how, because of course, and, and you do talk about this in your book, you know, how to lead a quest, you know, when it's hard to set goals when we don't know what the future is, right? <laughs> like you said, it many goals, you know, and of course in every strategic yeah. planning process, be it a yeah. school or an organization, we have, you know, assumptions built into our model. And so I want you to unpack that, but then also how, how in systems, so be they schools, be they universities, you know, be they companies where, frankly, every organization needs to be a learning organization, right? Um, mm. You know, what should, what should people pay attention to when it comes to that idea? I love this concept of alchemy, for example, as opposed to, mm. you know, transmission of knowledge. You know, all good educators know that it's never been about transmission. It's always yeah. been about the lighting yeah. of a fire, not the filling of a pail. But, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, take us through, yeah. what, what would you say, you know, through all of your different experiences, as someone that's kind of really forward thinking in this, in this space? I'd say that, you know, in terms of, um, okay, so there's a, there's a, <laughs> this is a very dangerous topic I'm about to unearth here. Right. So like it has to be done with a lot of, a lot of caution. I mean, I think that folks in this audience probably have a better grasp of, of it. Um, so just assume that I've given a whole bunch of empathetic caveats there. And I, this is all, all done with extreme, like, blend of humility and irony at the self-importance here, but it's important that we don't fall prey to developmental blindness. And by that, I mean that we forget that we're all on our journeys and we all have very different myriads of development uh, across many, many scales. I don't think it's worth fixating upon any singular mm -hmm. model. This notion of developmental blindness, by the way, I got from Hansi Freinacht, the author of The Listening Society, yeah. which is a guide of metamodern politics. But what this, what this highlights is, you know, within an organization, there are some folks that are going to want a sense of where are we going, you know, and they'll have an extreme sense of apprehension and anxiety in the absence of a roadmap. And then there are other folks that, you know, when seeing the roadmap, they'll be like, hang on, isn't this, you know, isn't this like limiting, you know, are we just kind of, why, why would we want to stick to this when all sorts of things will change? And so, from a leader's perspective, say if you're leading a school and I've worked with many principals, there is the both-hand sensibility mm. here. And, you know, uh, when presenting a plan um, with the vision, goals, values, and all the objectives, 
Um, the, the best folks I've seen being able to do that are able to present it as an amusing hypothesis. Yeah. You know, this is like, this is, this is something to fill the void, the absence of a plan, but let's not become so tightly wedded to this because anything may change. Now, what couples with that then is an increase in honest communication as we're going along the mm. way. So it's much less upon, much less about, you know, infrequent, very formal gatherings with all the minutes and much more. I mean, I see what Jacinda's doing, um, New Zealand Prime Minister. She's doing updates from her phone and stuff like that, keeping people posted. That seems to be a savvy. That coupled with the qualitative sense-making that 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 pairs alongside with the metrics. Mm. So most organisations, most things have, have all the metrics, but we all know that misses out in the worlds of rich, complex insight. So getting savvy with qualitative sense-making together, treating any plans as tentative and subject to change and proceeding with this kind of open, kind of honest dialogue, I think, I think that's, a, that's a good blend. Mm. I love this. I love this language, an amusing hypothesis. And I think this is the idea, I mean, and, and metaphor and the way that we think about that so do really kind of yeah, as storytellers as people that lean forward mm. always when we hear story before we we hear the kind of model not to say you know and so yeah. the, how those two things interplay I think is really interesting the, the thing that I'm fascinated about and we again we talk about it basically in every episode of this podcast is you know there's knowledge then there's skill and then there's disposition right and so it's kind of mm. the intricate kind of al- alchemist that tries to bring all those things together um I think is that that really seems to be the emerging. Well, it's not just the emerging. It's what all good learning has always been. It's you know how does this how is this changing who I am, what I can do, and what I know, as opposed to open your textbook to page sixteen or let's go through the metrics. You know, let's go through exactly. the sales goals that we hit as a company. You know, so you know, it's got to be something richer in terms of the way that we you know associate with the organization that we spend all of our time and energy at. Perhaps. Yeah, yeah. And, and most of the time I've worked with um, teachers, there's almost this acceptance that there's a whole heap of bullshit that needs to be ticked, like the boxes there, and they just try to, like the good leaders, try to shield and protect and minimise the admin burden as much as possible. And once that crap out, is out of the way, then we can hopefully cultivate the stuff for the space for emergence and flourishing. Mm. But our school system itself is... Uh, you know, I'm not the first to say it's not. I don't. I don't think it's uh, close to where it could be in terms of how ideal it could be. I think it's a, still a, a hangover from the industrial revolution, and um, I think that increasingly, and it's thanks to beacons like what you're doing here, increasingly we need to shine a light on the savviness when it comes to complexity. And there's a whole heap of sensibilities there that just seem very counterintuitive to someone who likes things neat, you know, linear, planned all laid out um and yet that's what we need to flex into because the world is changing and uh i feel as though we're in a transitionary period of systems collapse we can't keep on going as we are and so therefore it calls upon us to cultivate the kinds of sensibilities that may help us to navigate incredibly uncertain times tell me a bit more about um because we've had you know, Michael Fullen on this podcast spoke, you know, mm. speaks a lot about complexity theory um, and, you know, dynamic systems and the idea of trying to create liberation within a system. So you kind of liberate down and then inform up or inform in. Um, you know, what, what have you seen through your work and in terms of the way that leaders can actually enable those elements? You know, what is it about environments yeah. that are, you know, 
that are quest filled, you know, with the kind of playful yeah. curiosity or the amusing hypotheses, you know, like what is it that the yeah, leaders yeah, do? Yeah, yeah. And similarly, educators in classrooms are leaders of learning in their own way, just mm. as CEOs of large organizations are also. So yeah, tell me, what are some of the tangible things that you might see happening in an environment where yeah. you're seeing kind of, you know, a successful mm. quest where the dragon is being fought, whatever the dragon might be, all these kinds of things? Yeah, for sure. Um, well, I mean, so the, the language, and when, when I talk about quest, it's, it's, it's so much more than the definition I'm about to provide, but I, I would consider that um, a quest is the search for viable alternative options to the default. And oh. the default is the option we choose automatically in the absence of viable alternatives. So most organizations seem to be caught in this situation where 98% of their time is spent doing default work, default thinking, things that have been optimized for efficiency. And it's to the point now where we've become so efficient, it's almost like a curse. Um, we have become cursed with efficiency. We have systems, methods and procedures that, that eke out every single productive moment. And then if we're not careful in the last 10 years, we've seen the boundaries between work life and home life, and then particularly since COVID, all but disappear. Mm-hmm. Um, technology and the expectations of our accessibility have gone through the yeah. roof. So emails are getting sent out in early hours of the morning and... It's, it's just this weird, productive race to the bottom. And I think in this process, particularly in the last 10 years, but I'd say that this has been happening over the last 20 years, we've seen the erosion of a lot of what I would, cons- what I would call rituals, as in sacred routines that kind of lean against the grain of busyness mm-hmm. but do a lot of heavy lifting in complex domains. And what that looks like in an organisation is having a long lunch or doing cake and morning tea in a non-rushed fashion. It looks like, I don't know, teams used to do things where they'd, you know, go, I mean, I'm not a sports person at all, but they'd go play uh, cricket. I don't know. That's pretty boring. But um, they'll do something something, or or there's like a long walk or there's, there's things that are, you know, beyond just the scope of work that, you know, our petition and there's time dedicated for at work. Like I do think 80% of our time could be spent doing the default. We need to do this. This is the operational excellence, but it doesn't have to be 98% of the time. And I think that we could do more to cultivate pockets of emergence. Like Mm. there's something beautiful about a long lunch shared because you're in a different context. There's no rush. There's no agenda. It's a different environment. And the way of relating and the types of things that can emerge through the conversation are, are very different compared to, all right, we're going to sit and do this meeting together. And my hope is with COVID times, as we're leaning into this, I don't know, it's pretty, I, th- I think it's in some respects, it's pretty wonderful the access to learning we have right now, the, the myriad of Zoom and equivalent events that we can access. My hope now is that when people do return to work, there's a much more intentionality. There's a much more savvy around realizing what we can do in our own, you know, um, in terms of information processing. So when we show up together, there's more of a sense of enchantment and presence and I don't know, that we could you know, cultivate a bit more space to process some of the richer complexities that we've otherwise been ignoring. So I don't know if I quite answered the question. It, it kind of looks like it looks like things that are easier to dismiss as unproductive. It looks yeah. like nice things. It looks like book clubs and you know, gathering together to to share and converse in a non-rushed, non-optimized, non-measured, you know, manner. There's um, there's this interesting idea that, um, and I think yeah, you know, Thomas Friedman talks about this. The uh, you know, if if twenty, if there's a word of the kind of this moment, it's probably depth, right? So, 
And so something that, you know, in hearing you kind of lay that out, it's the idea is how do we do, you know, deep work, you know, Cal Newport stuff or deep mm-hmm. thinking, deep learning, you know, and I think what we're doing, and we can see it even now with hardworking, incredible educators, but, you know, the kind of expectations is we need all the kids to catch up mm. or to ensure that they meet all of the kind of expectations, not just during, you know, a global pandemic, but kind of always. And there is just the school day is so full. How do we hold open space? And we see some interesting things like you would be well aware of these things like, you know, Google time, which was that 20% concept, which to kind of moved into education as genius hour. And of course, an hour a week is okay, but it's kind of the starting point mm. potentially, you know, how do we just, particularly with what we know about the future of work, which is anything routine, cognitive or manual will be automated yeah. and everything else non-routine will be kind of augmented by artificial intelligence or by roboticization or the convergence of that and the convergence of the other, you know, plethora of other yeah. technologies. So yeah, it's interesting how we get out of our own way sometimes and give ourselves permission, right? Give ourselves permission to say, well, actually, we don't know where we're going to end up. But, you know, the idea of having to be super intentional and drive home for this objective is something that yeah. we, we, tr- we try to do as teachers because we care ultimately about our learners. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I mean, I, I remember when I, was, when I was lecturing at different universities and I had my students as well, and I remember investing a lot of time in, you know, extra tuition and, and all of that just to, just to help these folks out. And I really cared. And, and then one time I was marking assignments and I realized there's an option here where I could just tick and flick uh, and give a grade, or I could actually invest some time. But when I invested the time, my hourly rate went down to $3 an hour or something like that for the time. Yeah. And so I just saw all these mechanisms and these, you know, hidden incentives geared towards not caring um, as much. And there's a weird kind of um, meta-awareness that we need to cultivate here where we need to get a sense of what what are the genuine activities that we consider fulfilling that provide a, a rich sense mm. of meaningful progress um, and what are the things that could be considered a delusion of progress. And if we do almost like an anxiety heat map or a, a kind of thing That's of our time and almost like, like imagine it's in Braille and you can lightly brush your fingers across where your time goes. And if you find these snags, you're like, actually, that's a throbbing pit of um, delusion of progress. And maybe I can get savvier and liberating some time there so that I can invest it in this, which is actually quite meaningful. Maybe mm-hmm. we can get better at that. But that's, that's interesting. Yeah, it's challenging. You know, there's no singular uh, solutions to any of these wicked problems, but we can start to cultivate more, more sensibilities, more dispositions that can help us. You spoke, you just, you mentioned there this idea of incentives and I'd love you to think about, well, I'd love you to share, um, how might we think about the way we can change the incentives that we have, you know, and that, you know, obviously our economics incentives are one thing around materialism and consumerism, right? And again, that's, that's kind of been exposed through this, this period of time, but similarly within, you know, K to 12 school systems, there are incentives to, towards which one works, university, same concept, vocational, you know, so What's, what's your reflection on the way that we've structured incentives and how might we do that better? Knowing that, mm. again, as someone, you know, with you've spent a lot of time writing and thinking about this idea, you know, organizational culture comes into this, the idea of, you know, finance, you know, can ultimately backfire if you're giving, you know, yes. Dan Pink, you know, a long time ago spoke all about that stuff. So, yeah. yeah, what would you say about incentives and what we should think about? I reckon you've probably got uh, richer perspectives 
on this in that context than I do. So I might just share some thoughts and you can riff off of that. But um, sure. I mean, th there's the classic thing of the, the hygiene thing of, of pay people well, um, well enough so that you can get money off the tables as a consideration and then don't sully the intrinsic motivations by dangling carrots and incentives and rewards, particularly not with complex work like teaching. I would also think to work environments like there's a lot of talk nowadays around the four-day work week as opposed to five mm. days. I think that's so much more appealing than simply having an hour of genius time because it just doesn't, it's just, an hour is not enough. Um, so there's, there's ways to orientate with regards to the flexibility and how we structure for flourishing. This also couples with maybe a, maybe, maybe we can cultivate enough sense of belongingness and enough sense of self-esteem that people don't feel the need to, you know, turn to status and stuff to accumulate in their lives. And that, that I don't know if, if, if the community can be cultivated enough so that people feel as though they're playing a contributive role in a community and they have a sense of meaningness and mattering um, that maybe, maybe that can help in, in amongst the web. I mean, <laughs> these are, these are wonderful and noble and stuff, but it takes a kind of a small collective to start, cultivating these in any particular culture, but I don't know. I'm sure you've heard variations of these themes, but um, does that spark anything for you? I love the, the contributive piece. I think is really interesting, particularly from a learning perspective. Uh, and there's been some wonderful work done around motivation in education, right? But in psychology mm. and often by psychologists, right? So Carol Dweck's work, for example, yes. the growth mindset is hugely influential globally. And of course, the one challenge with that is that it's still an individualistic paradigm. Yes. At least it was framed as such. Yes. I'm sure Carol's yes. probably moved forward in her. Now, how do we actually think about, you know, um, Ash Buchanan, actually, he's a friend of mine and a fellow Melbourneian of yours, um, talked about benefit mindset. Mm. How do we move from kind of growth to benefit or, you know, and that's the idea of contributive learning. Mm. So how do we start to value what one contributes yeah. to the world as opposed to what one acquires? And, you know, this moment in time, we've just seen an enormous increase in inequality because we've just seen big tech, you know, yeah. Bezos and Musk, Gates and others literally just see their wealth go up by another 40% yeah. over this period of time, whilst we've got, you know, tens of millions of others looking at unemployment. And so surely most if we stop for just a moment and think, is this is this what we want yeah, yeah. as a collective? I mean, yeah. and the point and is this idea of the self-delusion, the mm. kind of Tom Collins's book that I'm currently reading, which is often on my mind, the, you know, it's the fact that we try to separate everything out and somehow see ourselves as, yeah. well, this is my effort and that is your effort. Well, actually, no, you know, we actually we co-create everything. Yeah. yeah, it's an ecosystem. So, yeah. I don't know, that's my musing. Are you, are you familiar with um, the notion of game B? No, tell me, tell me more about that. Uh, okay, so there's there's a, um, a podcast I enjoy listening to, Jim Rutt, um, the Jim Rutt Show. He has this okay. incredible American accent, like howdy, you know. <laughs> cool. I got, had major allergies initially when I heard his voice, but then I've come to really love his approach. So, um, Game B is just the the moniker for an alternative to Game A. So, Game A is the default mode that we have now. The late capitalist society where competitive dynamics are built into the core. So it's rivalrous. Like, you know, it's, if you think of the prisoner's dilemma, it's yeah. like, look after yourself first, then mm -hmm. consider others. I think game B is 
this seeking for an attractor, if we're going to go into societal collapse, which we do seem set to, um, it's like, how can we do so in a way that's non-rivalrous that we, we mm. kind of, I'm probably giving too, I'm probably anchoring it too much, but there, there's a whole bunch of complexity scientists that are thinking actually, you know what, in terms of ways of working and uh, I mean, there, there's so much, there's so much game, but game, be the world will open up for you. Uh, I think that also, I mean, I, I previously, when I read the listening society, that was quite a top down, like a Nordic ideology. You look at the, you know, the Nordic countries and they seem to be doing so many things so very well. Um, but, you know, putting on the metamon spin is it's going to be both and it's going to be top, top down, bottom up, this kind of collective thing. And, and yeah. one of the common recurring patterns and amongst all of this is the notion of micro solidarity, the sense of being able to cultivate you know, meaningful, small, you know, starting just with three, four, five people, but then maybe, maybe growing to a dozen or up to maybe a hundred people. It's like these, these pockets of micro solidarity where there is a sense of contribution and meaning in the roles that we play. Mm. And that's, this is a skill that I don't know, we, we haven't necessarily been uh, taught in the past 30 years, 40 years, but it's something there that I think is going to be really important for us going ahead. Well, that's, um, I'm going to check out Game B by Jim Rutt um, and the idea of, yeah, civilization level social operating system, which is, it's really interesting and connects to some of the work that um, I'm, you know, doing with a few colleagues around the place. But the idea, you know, when we think about well-being and I've, mm. you know, and I, to be honest, if we had to redefine success tomorrow, I think kind of collective well-being would be my best current definition of it, if I had to offer one. Yeah. And, but the idea is, you know, the, the kind of intrapersonal and then the interpersonal the kind of, you know, the team organizational community, and then of course the planetary and how we have that kind of through line. And Valerie Hannon talks a lot about this. She's a great thinker from the UK, but I'm interested. Um, That's great. As the rooster, you know, <laughs> it's just, let's just, just know in. that I am Don't on a farm. The roosters, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still here. I'm still here. Um, I'm really interested in, uh, a couple of final musings, you know, so what are the big things that you're still, you know, riffing on? Obviously you're a deeply curious person, um, <laughs> deeply curious person. So what are some of the things you think we might see unfold or emerge knowing that we can't, you know, the future punishes certainty, but rewards clarity. What might be some of the interesting things that yeah. you think are on the horizon for us? Um, I don't, I, I mean, it's interesting. I do see, like, uh, I do see the potential for a, a lot of collapse, and unfortunately, it feels like we're going to go through a bit of a phase that's going to be pretty challenging, and I'm not sure how long this transitionary period will be. The, the I've, I've come to think of um, a constellation of nebulous beacons as a as a as a guiding through this whenever I'm feeling lost, because I think there's something quite in common. Any complex thinker, um, anyone who's quite you know, got quite an affinity for complexity also potentially has a higher um, potential for anxiety because there's just so many more um, pernicious threats that we're aware of, but can do nothing about. And it's easy to have a much greater perception of how <laughs> uh, the wickedness of, of the current state of things, if, if your mind is to it. So when, when, when I am experiencing moments where I'm, I'm kind of potentially losing my way and feeling pretty down and existential, Dread. Yeah, and some, yeah, yeah, all the existential yeah. dread when I'm yeah. back in the abyss. Um, 
there's this beacon constellation and, and I, I'll name some of the nebulous beacon clusters that serve as a reference point. None of these are fixed, but there's a kind of, there's some, there's some sort of pattern there. And I'd say that there's the meta, metamodernism beacon concept in the Nordic ideologies. There's game B and the complexity science and the science of emergence. There's uh, Nora Bateson writes about warm data and um, complexity. There's, Jenny O'Dell wrote a book, um, How to Do Nothing, um, Resistance oh, in the Age of the Attention Economy. Um, and mm. she talks about, uh, you know, resistance in place instead of going off and buying a, you know, you know, go, um, that's it, I'm, I'm leaving the city. Uh, it's like, hang on, no, use what resources and perspective you can and resist in place. And it speaks, I don't know, there's a lot of sensibilities built up in there. There's the notion of solar punk, which is a, a fictional genre that's a, uh, I guess it's different to cyberpunk. Solarpunk is is more akin to the studio uh, Ghibli films like um, Totoro or um, um, House Moving Castle or Princess Mononoke. Yeah, there, there's a yeah. there's a worlds where there's much more harmony and there's no there's no necessary hero that solves or conquers anything. But there's there's ways that we can work for a bit more equilibrium and harmony amongst complexity. And then I see the role of like tricksters, of gestures, of fools, of, of contemporary mythology and how we reimagine the worlds that we find ourselves in. That, that, that I think there's a mythic role in terms of society that, that needs, it needs its gestures and its tricksters. And those, like in this day and age, thought leadership, real thought leadership is suspect. Like if people come forth with thought leadership, they, they'll look suspicious because it doesn't fit in our conventional paradigms. And yet we kind of need to open our, our focus to, to encompass some of the fools and the fringe because they may be onto something that um, is actually more wise than what we're doing now. Wow, there's some fantastic um, fantastic clusters to kind of unpack there and, and, and yeah, explore so into. Yeah, a bit of a sense that I, yeah, I can turn to when, when, when I'm not sure how to do Yeah, There is definitely the idea of, you know, curiosity as being one of those key drivers though, but also the idea of that novice mindset. Um, you know, so how do we stay curious for longer, as, you know, Michael Bungo Stanner would say, but how also can we, can we be humble in what we might yeah. know right now? And I think it's one of the issues we have is that as a species, we're pretty arrogant. We think we've got it worked out and clearly that's taking us at some pretty interesting tipping points, I think. Yeah, for sure. I think there's, you know, we've got the arrogance, but we've also got this, this world where there, there is a lot of um, everything gets captured and ossified, and and yeah. I think like what I've seen in the events industry is you've, we've gone from intimate you had to be there experiences where if you weren't in the room you didn't you you weren't there to now everyone's kind of it's recorded everyone's staging their things they're delivering highly polished pithy presentations and it's this kind of manufactured performance and everything seems performative nowadays and so we're missing that depth that. Um, that, that, that ability yeah. to, to not know, to, to stumble, to think and draft. And I think that is becoming ever more precious. That's a great point. Uh, as is the, the tension between being and doing, perhaps, mm. you know, the idea is, you know, I think one of the challenges of self-improvement and the domain of self-improvement is that there's always more, you know, so how can you be okay with being incomplete and the self-compassion um, that fits into that space. I yeah, think that's right. One. That's right. The self-improvement's a paradox, right? Because self-improvement is self-loathing in some ways because uh, why improve, you know, if you accept who you are? It's exactly <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, true non-attachment would mean that you actually wouldn't 
wouldn't feel compelled to. And this, I think, comes full circle to the idea of progress, right? Yes. Progress yes. where, you know? Mm. Um, to where? Yeah. To, towards, to, where, mm. to what end? So, mm. um, Jason, it's been an absolute delight to speak with you. I, I'd love you to offer just, you know, some, a final take-home message, you know, from your unique vantage point in these wonderful worlds of complexity and thinking and doing. Um, what is it that you would, you would offer as something for us to ponder? as we go forth towards a different definition of progress or whatever the case might be, whatever will emerge. So, Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is great. I, and like, I, I love the um, emergence of this conversation. I'd, um, uh, I had notes here that I thought that we might talk about, but we've just taken gone into some wonderful <laughs> worlds here. I was originally going to say my take home message really comes down to this distinction of, um, you know, meaningful progress, delusion of progress. I think we covered that. So I think I might take it another level. And I, I would I would encourage folks to think about them the the multitude of cells that they um, you know they're embodied in, and think about uh, to ask the question: What is your mythic role? Like, if you were to look at your life and look at the way you show up and the roles that you play, what is currently in this current chapter that you find yourself in? What mythic role mm. are you playing? How do you show up, and how are you? operating in service to this greater world that we find ourselves in. Um, thank you so much for uh, the conversation today. It's been wonderful to have you. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the Learning Future podcast. To find out more about our work, drop into thelearningfuture.com and follow us at Learning Future on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Here's to building a world of thriving learners together.